The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Retaining and Reengaging People Living with HIV in Care, a unique look at challenges and opportunities from the perspective of the patient, navigator, and provider. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GRT 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello. I'm Dr. Allison Agu. I'm a professor of adult and pediatric infectious diseases at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. I also direct two clinical programs, one targeted at adolescents and children living with HIV and one at young adults. I also lead a clinical research enterprise. Today, I'd like to speak to you about retaining and reengaging people living with HIV in care. Hello, my name is Nara Lee, and I'm the Social Work and Clinical Service Manager for HIV Prevention and Treatment Services Program at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. It's also known as Special Immunology Services for anonymity reasons uh, within the hospital. I will be sharing my perspective from a social work and navigator lens on the challenges of retaining and reengaging people living with HIV in care. Hi, I'm Shante Spriggs. I'm a mom. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. I coach coaches and consultants to be coaches and consultants while working a nine to five. I'm an advocate. I'm a compliance analyst for a global bank. But most importantly, I am a woman that's been living positive with HIV since 2010. And I thought my life ended, but it actually just begun. Hi, I'm David Martin. Um, I'm HIV positive and I was diagnosed in 1987. Um, so that makes me almost 36 years having been diagnosed. Um, I was 28 and about 11 months, so let's say 29 when I was diagnosed. And um, over the years, I've become what I would consider a health equity advocate to use my lived experience to help others not go through what I've been through and sort of to help manage their life having HIV. This activity is one of many resources in the larger re-engage people living with HIV in care through Workforce Response and Resiliency Initiative. This reinforced initiative is bringing a number of valuable resources to both providers and patients with a focus on re-engagement. Invite you to please take advantage of those wonderful resources. It's really important to look back as we think about the epidemic and where we are today the first reports of HIV came in 1981 with the CDC MMWR, Mobility and Mortality Report, in 1981, which chronicled the first cases of HIV and AIDS. And as you look down, you this timeline chronicles what happened in terms of response to HIV, but also the first treatments, 1987, which was AZT, uh, which is the Zidovidine, the first HIV drug which was approved for treatment. At that time, monotherapy. The treatment that was available was AZT at that time. It, they were experimenting with it. And, it, you know, I'd read up about it, uh, read up on it, and realized that this particular um, drug was toxic. And um, although toxic, I was willing to try it. It was about, I think I was on AZT for about a year. And um, I had to ask to stop taking it because mentally, every time I took 
AZT, I was thinking I was taking something toxic. And so mentally, I was making myself more sick by thinking negatively about the treatment I was taking. Since then, we've gone on to additional remedies. In 1998, there were first guidelines for HIV treatment. 2003, the PEPFAR response to HIV in other parts of the world. Importantly, 1998, with the addition of other nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors and other drugs, we had highly active antiretroviral therapy. And the first time, we had a cocktail of medications that kept people alive. I remember being a student in Baltimore, Maryland, and seeing people literally going from dying to our wards being empty and people living. And that's when I decided I wanted to be an HIV doc. And so today, we've gone from handfuls of drugs that people take to one pill once a day being the first line treatment for people with HIV. And we even have, in 2021, the first approved injectable agents for treatment, cabotegravirulpivirine, which people take every one to two months to control their HIV. That's where we've come. Another barrier was actually trying to work and trying to take medications when, at that point, I think I was taking it twice a day, um, but um, even taking medication on a regular basis, I had, had concerns of how to keep it, uh, how to take it, when to take it, um, where to take it. So that was a barrier in taking medications. And where would I take a medication? I didn't want anybody seeing me taking medications. So that was a problematic um, I think now, I mean, I'm taking one pill a day and it's easier. I'm not as paranoid about taking the medication, but it is of concern that even with taking it one day, one time a day, it's, you know, having to take it with food or suggest it with food and being consistent. So today, there are more than 30 approved HIV treatment medications, including the injectables. Many people are able to control the HIV infection with just one daily pill. With early treatment, antiretrovirals can prevent HIV-positive individuals from developing AIDS-defining illnesses and can reduce their viral load to the point that we now say U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If you have HIV and you are undetectable by taking your medications, you cannot, will not, transmit, which has had an amazing impact on individuals, feelings about themselves and the stigma, but also letting people live full and normal lives. Literally, with effective treatment, people who are HIV positive can live normal lifespans. Also, um, mentioning PrEP, you know, as I mentioned, these, these women, these men, they're back out there, they're dating, and they need to understand that there, there is life after this, there is love after this, and so Introducing prep to them, you know, letting them know that, hey, this is something that your partner could be on. I always often look at the fact that if prep was introduced to me at the time, I may have still been married. There's something to think about because that wasn't something that was out at the time or either it was out and I was unaware of it. But it could save a lot of relationships and then also have that additional support while you're nav navigating through HIV because both parties are on medication. However, it's not all a panacea. Though we have incredible improvements in HIV care and treatment, we've now learned 
that there are comorbidities and complications that do happen more commonly with individuals who live with or live with HIV. So while they survive into an older age, in fact, by 2030, 70% of people living with HIV will be over the age of 50, called the silvering of the epidemic. But we're starting to see those age-related illnesses that we all Americans are having, but more common in individuals with HIV. They have higher rates of comorbidities, hypertension, 34%, dyslipidemia or problems with cholesterol, 30%. In addition, many of those individuals have one or more conditions and are taking handfuls of medications, complicating their lives. I think that, you know, some things that I may think are from aging, we don't know. Um, whether HIV has anything to do with it. There is, from what I understand, there's this um, HIV-accelerated aging. So now that HIV is manageable and viral loads are suppressed, it was like, okay, we're good. But that's not true because no one ever thought that what happens when that person starts to age, what happens when the HIV and aging um, intersect. I mentioned that I'm an adolescent medicine specialist in terms of HIV, and so we know individuals who were born with HIV or acquired HIV early in life due to the virus, chronic HIV, due to the immune activation that happens as a result of the, of the infection, also the antiretroviral treatment, we're seeing comorbidities and toxicities at even younger ages in those individuals in, in terms of kidney disease, heart disease, bone disease, and mental health disorders. So making sure we don't forget those young people as we think about HIV. HIV care today. So where are we? You know, in terms of addressing the comorbidities and complications, it has been recognized that this is an issue. And the NIH, the World Health Organization, and the Office of AIDS Research are prioritizing comorbidities and research to try to address these comorbidities to improve long-term survival, healthy survival. The United Nations Program on HIV-AIDS, or UN-AIDS, has 2025 targets for AIDS. First, it's 95% of individuals who are at risk for HIV infection to be using effective combination preventive options like proper pre-exposure prophylaxis. 95% of individuals living with HIV knowing their status. 95% of those who know their status to initiate treatment. And lastly, 95% on treatment being virally suppressed. The Ending the HIV Epidemic um, aims to have, by 2025, to increase PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis coverage to 50%. We're not there yet. To 50%. Decrease new infections by 75%. To increase the knowledge to match the UNAIDS targets to 95%, meaning the people who know they are living with HIV. Linkage to care, 95%. We are very short of that, which we'll see. And then by 2030, to decrease new infections by 95%, or not by 90%. Where are we today? 2021, which is the last data we have from the CDC, we know slightly over a million individuals are living with diagnosed HIV infection. 36,000 of them, new diagnosis every year. And we've been stable at that for several years. There are about 20,000 deaths still today from HIV, unfortunately and unnecessarily. So what is the care continuum? What's the goal for viral suppression, maintain health, and decreasing transmission? Let's talk a little bit about that. So the ideal HIV care continuum, which is a stepwise process for number one, knowing that you have an HIV diagnosis, two, getting linked to care, 
getting engaged in care, being prescribed enteral therapy, achieving viral load, and retaining in care, and then continuing that process, retaining in care and continuing to be virally suppressed. This is the continuum and how it plays out. This one is for age, but I can show this for multiple race, ethnicity, locale in the country, poverty, etc. And what you see on this slide is diagnosis in the purple, receipt of care in blue, retention of care in, in red, and viral suppression. And I'll point out to some groups, the 13 to 24 age group, which is again the group that I take care of, and what we see in that group, only about 50%, 56% of those have a diagnosis, know that they're diagnosed and with HIV. When you get to retention and care, that's 30%. Viral suppression of those that we know their viral load, 36% of those are, are suppressed. And you see higher rates in, or higher values in those over 55, but there's some variability based on age, highlighting areas where we need to do work to improve the continuum of care in the U.S. Yeah, I have had some barriers and, and staying on treatment. Um, having been on um, treatment since 91, um, I was having this burnout and just tired of taking medication. And I asked my doctor about taking a holiday. Um, and I was concerned about, well, if I didn't take my medication, how long could I go without taking it before I, you know, succumb to negative impact of not taking it. And there was really no timeline, you know, I felt that it was best not to take the medicine if I wasn't going to take it regularly. And my um, provider had agreed with me that if I was going to take it haphazardly, I would become, it would, it's less useful. So we talked about the continuum and what needs to happen. But if you're out of care, what is the problem? The issue is if you're out of care, number one, there's a risk of you being virally, not virally suppressed or viremic. And with that, viremia becomes an issue with your own health, progression to opportunistic infections or infections that happen when your immune system is lower. Two, the risk of transmission, right? So secondary transmission to partners, or in the case of a pregnant woman, to her baby, right? Hospitalizations, cost of care, and then mortality and morbidity. So what are those challenges to engagement in retention and care? It's important to think about the patient level as well as the system-level barriers. In terms of the patient, there's the internalized HIV-related stigma, meaning the feeling that you have about having HIV inside of you and how you feel about yourself. But there's also the external stigma, how the world reacts to you. For example, someone not drinking from a cup that you're drinking from because they're concerned about HIV and how you feel and discrimination related to that. There's mental health struggles, depression, anxiety, higher rates among individuals living with HIV. At the beginning, I was not directed to um, care as far as either my mental wellness or support groups, which is why I'm such a big advocate of it now. Um, there, it wasn't there. I Googled everything. Um, I knew I needed help because on the surface, what you see is what you get. And so on the surface, people were seeing someone that was that was chipper, that was smiling. But inside I was I was full of depression and I had a lot of anxiety. Um, I couldn't sleep. There were days I didn't sleep, but I hid all of that. I think it's important for everyone to do that. And I have done it. 
you know, unfortunately, when I got to a point of saying I needed to speak to someone, I, it took about another six months to actually get an appointment for a mental health professional. Because once you get to the point of saying I need to see someone, how long can you go before seeing someone? And how long have you been building up to that? Substance use can impact how you engage with your care. Then the logistical things, transportation, distance from your facility, how you're going to get to where you need to go to receive your care. And if you are unemployed, underemployed, or just need to stay employed and be able to engage in care. There was a fear. I have to admit, there was a fear because there were so many different myths about medication and there were so many different things and you can only research so much on <laughs> Google uh, but there were so many uh, myths about medication. I was afraid that it was going to make me sick, make me nauseous. I wasn't going to be able to work. And at the time all this was going on, my career was taken off. And so uh, my job, they, they knew from the beginning of my diagnosis, I went ahead and disclosed and they were very supportive, but I was afraid that all that was going to change. And then there are other things, comorbidities, for example, having a disability and being able to get to where you are. And then there's just the reality of treatment. Though I said it's one pill once a day, it's still one pill once a day, every day. And there's lack of health literacy, not understanding or not knowing what you need to do and how to navigate that health system. Looking back in hindsight, I would definitely say that there was an education gap, a, a huge, tremendous education gap, because you don't know what you don't know. But they always just said, you're fine, you're good. And so in my mind, I'm thinking fine and good is fine and good. Later on, I'm finding out different things about PrEP. I'm finding out different things about uh, medications because I, I ended up getting shingles from switching my medications. I didn't know that that sometimes may be something that may be a reaction. Those things were more reactive as they came up. Um, but I wish there was more education up front where we could have been more proactive. I just recently learned about HIV 101 probably three to four years ago when I started facilitating and I started understanding how the medications actually stop different parts of the replication. But I just think I wish that those things, even if it was no more than a video um, in the lobby or something that could be emailed to us, because some people may not want to view that in a lobby. I just wish there was more information up front because it would have made better sense. But it's not all on the patient. And I think it's important for us to think about the system level barriers. What is it that we as providers or clinics do that can impact how our patients engage in care? There's some parts of the United States where there literally are no providers who take care of individuals with HIV. And so imagine having to go 50, 100 miles to get your care or more and whether or not you will actually engage in care if that's what happens. And I was going on business trips from four to six weeks at a time. That's something you don't think about. And I ran out of my medication and that local area did not have my medication. So they actually sent me to Cincinnati to get my medication, which was like an hour away, uh, which was fine. But I had to wait 72 hours. So I, I ran a big risk during that time. So that's why I'm glad there's things like the shot coming out and things of that nature. But yeah, that was something that that really was a barrier for me. Long appointment wait times. How long does it take to actually get an appointment with you? Is it months? And is that enough? Having inconvenient times. I had one doctor who was the medical director for this particular um, clinic. 
And I noticed that, okay, I'm seeing a doctor every three times, you know, every three months. So that's four times a year. But at least twice out of those four times, my appointment would get canceled because they have something else on their schedule or have to do something else. And so this bothered me because I felt like um, this person didn't really look at who's coming in that day, or maybe they did. Maybe they felt I was doing well and that I could be rescheduled. Who knows? Psychologically, for me, I felt that they didn't really care for me. There's language or cultural barriers. We do know that a significant number of our patients, English is not their first language. And if the signage, the directions are all in a language that they don't understand, how do we expect them to adhere? So how do we compound the barriers that they have? And there's healthcare inequities. And we know that they're, they're in systemic in many parts of our country. So in terms of the patient perspectives on enrollment and retention and choice, I like to think about models, right? Um, there's a model, this is actually not specific to HIV, but has been applied to HIV. And it's the behavioral model of health service use. And I want you to think about the demographic or structural health beliefs, social support, patient judgments, how these things can lead into predisposing factors, meaning things that may increase the likelihood that you're going to have a behavior at the end. Here it says health service use for HIV. It may be retention and care. It may be taking your medications. There are the enabling factors, things that make it easier. So having transportation that can get you there, being closer to your appointment. And then there are the need factors that involve both the patient and a provider's perception about their health status, their diagnosis, and their health concerns. And what do they feel they need? If you feel completely healthy, you may not feel the need to take your medication. So how do these all interplay in the setting of HIV to improve likelihood of actually engaging in care, retaining in care, and viral suppression? So layering in the HIV-specific factors onto the behavioral service model, thinking about predisposing factors. So limited knowledge about disease, not understanding the risk factors, treatment, importance of management, you may be less likely to engage in care or retain in care because you don't understand. Years ago, we used to say, you have a diagnosis, we'll see you when your viral load or your CD4 falls to a certain amount. And people would come get their diagnosis and they would say, I'd come back, they told me I didn't need medication. And so making that now, you're diagnosed, you get on treatment, and here's why you get on treatment, people are more likely to engage. Enabling factors. So I oftentimes say having at least one person who knows your diagnosis improves your likelihood of engaging in care. One person who you have accountability to and is accountable to you to help you get your appointments on the records, to help you get there, to follow up, to hold your hand, to talk to you, right? So who are your people as a provider? Who are your people in engaging with your patients that way? Privacy and confidentiality concerns. If your clinic says HIV clinic and your patients, when they walk in, feel as if they've disclosed that they have HIV, they're less likely to walk in. So what can we do to enable the likelihood that they're going to come in? Well, of course, at the time, um, when, when, we're consider when we're considering apprehensions um, to medication or, or care, I didn't know anything about this at all. And at the time, um, I worked for a global bank and I was an executive trainer then. And so anyone that came through those doors to be hired, I knew them. And so I opted to actually get care almost two hours away. I was living in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I opted to get care in Charlotte 
because I didn't want to run into anyone that I knew. So there are a lot of factors that contribute to people living with HIV falling in and out of care. And I feel like the first thing, the, the most important thing is that every patient needs a go-to person in the clinic, someone that is a consistent person for them, someone that they can call and rely on. And they could be a social worker, a nurse case manager, patient care navigator, and even a medical provider. But it just has to be someone that is consistent with them. Um, for us as providers, you know, treating patients is a daily Monday through Friday routine for us. But we often forget that this is a life-changing diagnosis for all of our patients, and they're still grappling with their diagnosis. Some things that I've done to help re-engage patients or clients back into care is I'm, I'm big on follow-up. And um, I would notice that if someone wouldn't show up for about one or two sessions, okay, that third one, I need to reach out. And and it was no more, it wasn't like, hey, where you been? It was like, hey, do you need anything? I was trying to determine the social determinants. And most of the time it had to do with housing, um, grief. Um, those were the main ones. And they just said, Shantae, that's the last thing on my mind right now. And I was like, I, I, I need to remind you that this needs to be on your mind because I, I need you back here. And so just giving them that added support so for initial intakes, uh, after I get the basic demographics, I always tell the patients that, hey, I'm about to ask you some very personal questions. So if you don't feel comfortable with any of it or all of it, you don't have to answer them. And I always tell them the reason I'm asking these personal questions is so that we can best get, we can give them the best care possible. So um, I just want everyone to be kind of aware that when you're going in, you want to just empower the patient um, and let them know that they're in control. And sometimes we have to check our own agendas at the door and meet the patient where they are. So when they come in, they might have some other pressing concerns that are at the top of their priority list. So for example, they could be uh, at a new job and they can't e uh, get off time for work because they have to make money to pay rent. They might have some housing insecurities. Uh, we have some patients that get kicked out of their homes and they're couch surfing. That whole thing about patient-centered, it's not patient meaning a group of patients that fall under the HIV category. It's the patient, the only patient that's in front of you. You have to be patient-centered for that individual. You can't use everything that you've done for everybody else for that particular person. You have to meet them where they are. They're all individual. Patient care may be dependent on age dependence. So obviously for adults, you can only do so much as calling them, texting them, sending letters. Um, I mean, even as far as going to do home visits. But we cannot continue this cat and mouse chase. Um, when you continue to like call them all the time or talk to them about, hey, like, why are you not coming to appointments? You really need to come to your appointments. You want to really uh, avoid making them feel harassed or berated because at the end of the day, they know that they have HIV 
and they know that they need to take their medications. So for them, uh, they just need a consistent pillar that they can reach out to when they are ready to engage in care. As far as uh, patients that are under the age of 18, uh, you can utilize Child Protective Services as a tool. So I think historically speaking, a lot of people, when they hear CPS, Child Protective Services, their immediate response gets is, you don't think I'm a good parent or a guardian. You think I'm doing something wrong. And they get into a very defensive mode. But you want to let your patients know, we're not doing this as a punitive thing. We're doing this so that we can identify some further needs that we're not aware of that's going on in the home. And possibly CPS can bring in more resources for you. I wanted to kind of talk about a patient of mine um, that I have known since he was 16. Uh, He got diagnosed. He's a horizontally infected 18-year-old male right now. And he was consistent with his medication and coming to all of his appointments, answering all the phone calls and text messages I was sending to him. And then all of a sudden it just stopped, right? No more engaging, no more, you know, replying back to my text messages. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to just start calling him on a one, you know, weekly basis and leaving very simple voicemails. So Something in the sense of the patient knows I'm calling. I know that they're, you know, not engaging in care and that they can reach me whenever they're ready. So around, you know, month eight, that's when he finally called me. And he said that his aunt and his grandmother passed away in a very short period of time. And he had become really depressed. And he said, I just needed a break. And he said that he knew that I was leaving him voicemails. And he felt like, you know what, you know, Miss Lee cares about me. She knows, you know, I've been kind of MIA, but I wasn't leaving these voice messages threatening him or whatnot, but just saying, hey, I'm here for you. I want you guys to know that a lot of times when patients come in, they themselves feel like they are a walking HIV diagnosis, but they are more than just their diagnosis and they have an outside life. Every patient is going to be different. So they are going to need a unique treatment plan. And sometimes we're going to have to pivot from anything related to HIV. And that's okay. Some of our patients are not ready to talk about their diagnosis, not really wanting to talk about taking medications. So at this time, it's all about building a rapport with the patient first. And during that process of helping them with their other priorities, they might come around to wanting to start talking about their HIV care. And some of the stuff that they might be wanting to work on is, hey, you know, I want to I want a new job or, hey, can you help me with some interview techniques? Um, I don't have a lot of food at my house, like my food stamps got cut off or I want to get my GED. So there's a lot of different things that are going on with the patient and it's all about listening to them and asking them what do they want to work on right now it was really up to me and at that point i think i i was off medication for about nine months to a year because i i just didn't have the 
the desire or I felt like my life was dependent on this medication and psychologically that didn't make me feel good. Um, and because I wasn't really sticking to my regimen, it was not helpful. So um, that was a barrier for me. But I think the holiday was a good opportunity for me to recalibrate my um, focus on health um, and do some counseling therapy in terms of how I was viewing the medication. Regardless of what role you're playing in the sense of if you are a medical provider, a psychologist, a social worker, or even a community uh, health worker, um, a lot of our patients feel like they are going to let us down or they don't want to feel judged when they come in and judge and when they're talking about their life decisions and they feel like, oh, you know, my HIV team or my social worker is not going to approve of my lifestyle. So they'll start avoiding us. So, you know, if they don't want to come to clinic, you know, they they don't have to look at her, you know, disappointed faces when their viral load goes up or they get another SPI. So just be really mindful of the power dynamics when um, a patient comes in. Lastly, um, I wanted to end with a story that is really near and dear to my heart. He's a 21-year-old perinatally infected African-American male, and he just really had a hard time uh, accepting his HIV diagnosis. And usually with perinatally infected patients, they have this complex of, it's not my fault. You know, I was born with this, so why do I have to deal with something that I didn't even contribute to? And so... When he was around 21 years old, he came into clinic and he just straight up said, I want to be taken off medications altogether. And me initially, you know, it was I had just been maybe a year into working with, you know, patients living with HIV. And for me, my, you know, senses went up and I was like, you know, trying to kind of negotiate with him and saying, hey, you know, like, how can we, you know, help you start taking your medications? And so I was, I started kind of like debating back and forth with him and I had to take a step back. So in over 10 years that I've been working with patients living with HIV, you know, we've only had one request like this. So I'm not trying to say this is an everyday occurrence, but I want um, you guys to know that when patients come to us and say, hey, this is where I'm at. We have to respect their autonomy and give them the power to make their own decisions because it's their life and we are here just to support them in whatever decisions they make. Follow-up is very key. Um, if you notice someone is not there, uh, reach out. But lots of times that has to do with the systems. Uh, if you don't have a system in place to alert you or you have someone readily going in there, um, some type of compliance in place to see who's falling out a gap. Typically, once we find out, it's too late or they've just their mindset has shifted. So I'm like, we need to have systems in place. So identifying patients who are not in care, what do we need to do? So in order to improve engagement and retention in care, we have to first decide how we will retain people in care, but we also have to know 
what are the definitions of retaining and engaging in care? Okay. So the CDC, the National HIV AIDS Strategy, has one definition, HRSA has others. It's important to say, well, what definition are we looking for? So the CDC, in terms of engagement in care, it's having greater than or equal to two CD4 counts, greater than three months apart during the year of evaluation. So that's a definition in terms of engaged. The HRSA, Health Resources Services Administration, greater than or equal to two medical visits that are greater than or equal to 90 days apart in the measurement year. CDC has the Data to Care, which is a public health strategy that uses multiple sources of data to help us figure out who's virally suppressed, who's engaged in care, who's linked to care, using data, HIV surveillance data, pharmacy fill data, saying who's prescribed the medication, but also who picked up that medication, right? Being prescribed only counts if you pick it up and then you take it. Clinic appointment data in terms of attendance to appointments, missing appointments, and then other treatment data in terms of HIV surveillance data and the like. This data is all used to then figure out how we are doing in terms of engaging and retaining individuals in care. Before we identify what interventions are needed to address our populations, we first have to know the population. We have to think about a plan that works for our situation, our environment, and our context. Have to know what the team is that we need. Who do we need? A social worker, a peer navigator? What's needed? What do you have funding for? What are we trying to implement? Which measures are we trying to address? And then what data do we need to collect? How do we evaluate? How do we tweak it? And how do we repeat it? Where do you go for these evidence-based interventions? Right? It's easy to start something, but you want to know that you're doing something, that there's data behind. The CDC has a nice compendium intervention search where you can literally put in who the population you're dealing with, what you're trying to get at, retention and care, what are the potential interventions that you can try? And it will actually list out interventions that have been tried and their data or literature to support. To give you an example, this is our own site in Baltimore. We utilize the Strategic Multi-Site Initiative for the Identification, Linkage, and Engagement in Care of HIV-Infected Youth. I'm going to repeat that because that's old jargon. That's youth who are living with HIV, called SMILE. And what this intervention did, it looked to link youth to HIV-friendly care and then evaluated the milestones. We had a peer navigator who actually would find the youth and then actually engage them in care. And then there were metrics, 42 days to get them to their appointment, follow up to then follow up to the next appointment. And then following and tracking, we were able to bring those patients in and follow them to viral suppression. This was done at 13 Adolescent Trial Network sites, which are NIH-funded sites, 733 participants with baseline data, 80% males, 72% non-Hispanic Blacks, reflecting the epidemic in youth, and 24% had previously been in care but had been lost to follow-up and were now being relinked. 64% of those youth were identified as gay, bisexual, or questioning, so really reflecting the, the epidemic among youth. That initiative, 75% were linked to care. Of those linked to care, 80% engaged in care, 45% were retaining care at an ATN site, ART was initiated in 45%, and of those, 35% achieved viral suppression at least once during the study, and 32% had a viral suppression rate at the last available measurement. Now you may say, oh my goodness, these numbers are really still low. They are low for a number of reasons. Number one, it's challenging for youth, and antiretroviral medication every day is challenging. 
and underscores the reason we need to think about other strategies like injectables to maintain viral suppression for youth. And these numbers actually were higher than the 6% that were estimated for youth in terms of viral suppression in studies that were done in the past. Malcolm Gladwell has a book called The Outliers. And in The Outliers, he speaks about the 10,000-hour rule. So the thought is that after you do something for 10,000 hours, you become a master at it. So I'm thinking about how long I've been HIV positive, which adds up to about a quarter million hours. So if I can take my quarter million hours and master and whatever mastery level I've achieved and pass it on to others, I think I've done well. And I think that will benefit others. And I think everyone should start looking at their experiences, their illnesses, whatever they've been through, and count the hours and see where they have mastered what they've gone through and gotten through it and still standing, you know, and pass that on to the next generation. I made sure once a quarter I, I met them somewhere, whether it was giving them something on their porch and they was I'm 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 in the in the street waving at them and I'm like, I left it at your stuff. I love you. Um, just knowing that that support is there. And so I say follow up is very key. Um, if you notice someone is not there, uh, reach out. So just those different things to keep it fun and engaging. But then also they're different women now. They are actually going to their healthcare providers with a list of things, you know, of different things that they notice or letting them know about other comorbidities. And those were things that they weren't doing before. And all it took was just a little TLC. So what are the key takeaways for us today? I think one, it's important to say we've come a long way in terms of HIV. We now have many convenient, effective ERT options to treat individuals living with HIV, to reduce their viral loads and their transmission, and to have them live normal, healthy lives. However, to meet the very lofty goals, global and national, to end the HIV epidemic, we must make sure that all individuals living with HIV can maintain and care and can achieve and maintain viral suppression. To do this, we have to literally think about what the barriers are to address those barriers and meet people where they are. There are many interventions that have been investigated to target these barriers, but it's important to think about what those barriers are by engaging with your patients and deciding with them what works for them. But it's also important for us to not put it all on the patients. There's many things that we do as providers and as a system that can actually contribute to those barriers. So we need to look at ourselves as well. How are we contributing to the barriers to care for our patients? And lastly, it is about open, continuous, effective dialogue every time individuals come in. Self-reflection, reflection with them, and working with people to work on systems and programs that work in terms of addressing barriers to engagement and care and retention and care. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Health HIV. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GRT 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated.